So, Tegan, how's this for a change? This podcast, the news broke before we started recording. It's so nice when that happens, Chris. It's nice when it happens. However, it also puts the pressure on. Now we actually have to come up with analysis. You don't have time to research it or figure things out. It's go time right now. You good for that? Real-time analysis, Chris. That's what Trial Balloon brings you. Real-time analysis. Yeah, I mean, okay, fine. Released 12 hours later once the podcast gets edited and you schedule it, but it's near real-time. And keep in mind that if 12 hours from now we realize that we got it completely wrong, we're going to pull this episode. Oh yeah, we can change that. We'll ask our colleague Kip to make a little change and it'll be like it never happened, but let's go forward as if it is going to happen. Quick programming note, next week, good news, we will have a podcast. It will be a mailbag plus a personal remembrance from you, which I think folks are going to want to hear. It's very, very nice and it was heartwarming. It'll be good 4th of July and Independence Week celebration material. That all reminds me to remind our listeners, if you want to send questions for the mailbag, here's how. You can contact Tegan via Political Wire. You can email me any questions by simply replying to any day's newsletter. Now, let's get on with business. The major, massive, mega headline from the New York Times, Supreme Court rejects affirmative action at U.S. colleges. Adam Liptak writes, The Supreme Court on Thursday ruled that the race-conscious admissions programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina were unlawful, rejecting affirmative action at colleges and universities around the nation, a policy that has long been a pillar of higher education. The vote was six to three with the court's liberal members in dissent. Quote, the Harvard and UNC admissions programs cannot be reconciled with the guarantees of the Equal Protection Clause, Chief Justice John G. Roberts Jr. wrote for the majority. Both programs lack sufficiently focused and measurable objectives warranting the use of race, unavoidably employ race in a negative manner, involve racial stereotyping, and lack meaningful endpoints, end quote. Justice Sonia Sotomayor summarized her dissent from the bench, a rare move that signals profound disagreement, quote, the court subverts the constitutional guarantee of equal protection by further entrenching racial inequality in education, the very foundation of our democratic government and pluralistic society, she said in her written dissent. Tegan, this podcast isn't a discussion about the legality or constitutionality or Supreme Court historical analysis, but it is a podcast about the role of politics and our society, particularly the idea that politics is a real-time evolving expression of our society. So what are the politics of today's decision? Great question, Chris. Well, it's clearly a huge decision, but one that we've pretty much been expecting for many months. You know, it's kind of like the decision last summer repealing Roe v. Wade. We knew it was coming. We knew that the conservatives had the votes. We knew by their early arguments that they were going to do so. And it's the same with this decision. So it's not a surprise. What is a bit of a surprise is some of the dissents that came. You read Justice Sotomayor. I think that Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson summarized in one sentence what the other side feels about this, which is, with let them eat cake obliviousness today, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat, but deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. And I think that's the position that the liberals take I think that's the position that President Biden took. He felt the need before he headed to New York for a series of fundraisers to speak publicly about this decision. 
once again, this conservative Supreme Court has handed Democrats an issue for the 2024 campaign, which is really going to help them turn out their vote. So let's take both sides of it. Let's take the general election, which you are stating that it's going to help Democrats, you feel. First, though, the Republican primary. How do the politics play out in the Republican primary? Is it simply a race to the right, to the far right? Well, you know, Ron DeSantis has already come out with a video clip of Donald Trump saying he's fine with affirmative action. He's obviously trying to run to Donald Trump's right. Whether any of that matters in the Republican Party, I'm not sure. It seems it's all Trump all the time. That's how the Republican Party is going to be decided. I'm not sure that a video clip from years ago is going to make that big a difference. You know, keep in mind on the abortion issue, Donald Trump used to be pro-choice and there's plenty of clips saying he was pro-choice. I think what Donald Trump has going for him in the Republican primary is he appointed the Supreme Court justices that allowed this decision to happen, just like he appointed the justices that allowed the repeal of Roe v. Wade to happen as well. So DeSantis takes his shot, but I don't think it's really going to matter. I think there's going to be a lot of celebration on the Republican side, but I don't know how big an issue it's going to be. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't see how it's terribly much of a differentiating issue on the Republican side. We should put a link to the DeSantis tweet in the show notes because it was really classic. The quote from the interview with Trump was a Meet the Press interview from 2015, where he's talking with Chuck Todd and says, I'm fine with affirmative action. And to your point, he had all sorts of views that it's shocking now that we all have come to know Donald Trump that those views changed and he doesn't support any of them anymore. But DeSantis's comment on top of the Trump quote from 2015 that Trump is fine with affirmative action, DeSantis's comment on top of that video clip was, sad day for affirmative action advocates. I don't think it's going to really differentiate within the Republican side, but it's making for a little bit of attempts and throwing the business at each other. Also interesting, I mean, your point about Trump, his greatest differentiator on the Republican side is he has a record to run on. And that point that he made is, you know, those three conservative justices, guess who appointed them? I also found it interesting. I don't know if you saw this. That was a big part of Mike Pence's tweet as well. He is very proud to have been part of an administration that appointed the three conservative justices. I always find it entertaining the times when Pence decides that he's very, very proud of the efforts that he was a part of. And then, of course, he's running against the guy who was president at that time. But that's just sideline commentary. That's not important, of course. But he, too, is very proud of having appointed those three justices. So maybe that's the differentiator. Everyone can have their views, but Trump can say to Republican voters, while we may all share the same views, who's the one who got it done? Exactly. I think Donald Trump ultimately takes credit for any of this, which is popular among the Republican side. The bigger issue really, I think, is the general election, because this is an issue just like the abortion issue where the majority of the public is against the Supreme Court decision. And polls have shown that pretty consistently. So Democrats already are on the right side in terms of overall public opinion. But more importantly, it's the type of issue that really helps Democrats motivate their base voters. The abortion decision, as we've seen and as we've seen in special elections since last summer's decision, has helped Democrats turn out the vote. Many, many more women are voting, people who really feel that this is a personal attack on their rights. Similarly, I would expect to see that this would be a great motivator for African-American voters, for Latino voters. 
we will see, and I'm sure we'll have polling around this in the coming weeks. But I think that with President Biden coming out so strongly, immediately talking out against this decision, I think that Democrats really see a major issue for them to grab onto. So once again, the conservative Supreme Court has really allowed Democrats to run on some very important issues here. And I want to ask you about that motivating the base and how far in the spectrum of Democratic voters from furthest reaches of the left to, let's say, most centrist, how motivating you feel this will be. But picking up on Liptak's New York Times article, because this was exactly to your point, I believe, he wrote, more broadly, the ruling demonstrated that the court's conservative supermajority continues to move at a brisk pace to upend decades of jurisprudence and redefine aspects of American life on contentious issues like abortion, guns, and now race, all in the space of a year. Quote, at bottom, Justice Sotomayor wrote, the six unelected members of today's majority upend the status quo based on their policy preferences about what race in America should be like, but is not. And their preferences for a veneer of colorblindness in a society where race has always mattered and continues to matter in fact and in law. And this idea of six unelected members of today's majority upending the status quo And the sense of the conservative majority and the Supreme Court upending precedent. And at the end, I don't know if you heard at the end of Biden's press conference today, somebody shouted a question at him, is this a rogue court? And he took a good little bit to think about it. He was on his way out of the room and he turned and he said, ultimately, no, this is not a rogue court. And I can only imagine the various permutations that he was going through in the pros and cons of if the president of the United States said that it was a rogue Supreme Court and how destabilizing such a statement could have been. My interpretation was he didn't want to literally have that quote be on the record because that quote literally would potentially be so destabilizing and set up such a dichotomy between the executive branch and the judicial branch that I I think he just didn't want to go there. That's how I interpreted that moment. However, this idea of running against the Supreme Court, this idea that it is the conservative justices who are upending the status quo, that this is where radicalism may sit in today's America, is that the heart of the Democratic case in 2024? Well, look, it's not surprising that Joe Biden would defend the institution of the Supreme Court. But at the same time, he also said this is not a normal court. He's kind of telegraphing to Democrats and to voters that if you want a different court, we can make a different court. We can appoint different justices, but he's not going to attack the institution itself, just as he's not going to attack any of these democratic institutions that we have in this country, because that's not his brand. He ran against that. He said that Donald Trump was doing that, and Donald Trump has essentially promised to do that even more. So if there is a matchup between Biden and Trump in 2024, a rematch, I would expect that Biden's going to run on the same platform. So he doesn't want to attack the institutions, but he did say it was not a normal court. It may not be a rogue court, but it's not a normal court. I think there is a big distinction there. You know, what's interesting as well is that the court itself realized that this was going to be a very controversial decision. And friend of the pod, Rick Hassan, law professor who writes the election law blog, he writes that the timing and order of the release of Supreme Court decisions this week was calculated to disarm critics. 
And so that the affirmative action case released later in the week was preceded by so-called good news for Democrats on some of the redistricting cases in Louisiana. That is a really interesting point. It suggests that Chief Justice John Roberts is very concerned about how the court is viewed here. The court really took a shellacking after last summer's decision repealing Roe v. Wade. This time he's trying to temper some of the feelings, I think, by giving Democrats wins on these redistricting cases even though they followed up with one of the great wishes of conservatives for the last few decades. So you know how I said at the top of this that this is real-time analysis. It's also real-time fact check. And I just looked at the Twitter because I was listening to your response to my question. So the question to Biden was, is this a rogue court? He then did that pause that I described, but he answered what you said. He answered this is not a normal court. I thought he had said, this is not a rogue court. So he didn't say that. He didn't take the bait on rogue court because that insinuates you know, a real going off the institutional course. But he did then answer with what you said, this is not a normal court, which outlines the point that you just made. So real-time analysis combined with real-time fact check, all delivered to listeners 12 hours later. How's nope, that for a pitch? And no extra charge. All at the same price. My last question on this, I just want to follow up what I raised a moment ago, the abortion decision. I understand why that motivates the Democratic base. I would argue, and I think you agree, that it also motivates all the way along the spectrum of Democratic voters into centrists and even maybe a little bit beyond centrists, folks who might be interested in voting Democratic for whatever reason that they are not interested in the Republican nominee, depending on who the Republican nominee is. Is this as animating along the spectrum of Democratic voters, or is it as animating to the base, which we have a whole separate podcast on how important it is to get the base out as opposed to getting the widest spectrum possible? Does today's decision have the range that the abortion decision has, or it has the same energy, but maybe not the same range? That's a great question, and it's an important distinction. The abortion decision is going to be much more important for Democrats in terms of turning out the vote. And I think it's for the simple cases that having the right to an abortion, either having it or not having it, it's an important thing for so many people. They understand what it means to have that right taken away. I think it's a little bit more nuanced with affirmative action. I think that if you're a black American, you are probably very disappointed in this decision. Not to say that white Americans are not either. Obviously, the polls show that the majority of Americans are opposed to this decision right now. The truth of the matter is that there are white Americans who probably maybe silently say, you know, they've got college age kids and they think that their kids have had trouble getting into colleges because of affirmative action. Maybe that decision won't be quite as important. Nonetheless, I think it's net net a very strong issue for Democrats. And that's really why Joe Biden felt the need to speak publicly so quickly. Obviously, a very, very, very significant day in American history, American politics, American society, and it will give all of us important questions and important realities to talk about and act on over the next weeks and years and more. Issues around race in America are not going away with this one Supreme Court decision, to say the least. Next topic, picking up from last week and our discussion on third-party candidates, 
Political Wire on Wednesday reported more Democrats than Republicans open to a third party. A new NBC News poll finds 44% of registered voters say they are willing to consider supporting a third party or independent presidential candidate if President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump are the two major party nominees in 2024. And the group includes more Democrats than Republicans. However, a majority of all registered voters, 53%, say they wouldn't consider voting for another candidate in a matchup between Biden and Trump next year. So if today's affirmative action decision gave Trump the ability to claim more credit, we've seen other polls, of course, where he's continuing to run strong among Republicans and Joe Biden, barring RFK Jr., somehow taking the party away from him, continues on track. And you have Biden v. Trump version two. Odds getting greater of a third party candidate, or is this just the stuff that people like to talk about on political podcasts? Oh, well, that's always true, Chris. You know that. The unspoken truth about Joe Biden as president in Joe Biden's candidacy, both in 2020 and 2024, is that more people or a significant number of the people who voted for Joe Biden were voting against Donald Trump. And that's one reason why I think Democrats are just fine making this election about Donald Trump again. The great fear that I think Democrats have is that there is a third choice out there and that most people believe that if there is a third choice, that that would hurt Joe Biden more. So there's this no labels effort where they're trying to get on the ballot in all 50 states. And many people believe, and I think that they're correct, that a third party candidacy would hurt Biden more than it would Trump. And I think that the poll that you just cited is just more proof of that. For whatever reason, there's a lack of excitement about the Biden candidacy, about Biden's reelection, whether you think he's too old or whether you really just voted for him because he wasn't Donald Trump. I think if there is a third choice there, it probably does hurt Joe Biden more than Donald Trump. And so that's a reason why you see Republicans meddling in the Democratic primary, supporting Robert Kennedy Jr., or you have many people suspecting that it's Republican big donors behind no labels and trying to get this third-party candidacy there. And don't forget, not a lot of people know Cornell West, who I actually met when I was in college years ago. And it would have blown me away if you told me that Cornell West was going to run for president someday. But Cornell West is going to run on the Green Party line, assuming he gets the nomination. He's got Jill Stein, the 2016 Green Party candidate, as his campaign manager. And if he's on enough ballots, that's something that can also draw support away from Joe Biden. So right now, I think that the biggest fear that Democrats have is not who the Republicans put up. It's whether or not there will be a third party candidate, particularly in those swing states that matter. Is there anything Biden can be doing defensively or offensively around the third party candidate issue? And is there anything that the Democratic Party or Democratic donors could or should be doing? What's the counteroffensive? Yeah, well, they're trying to keep no labels off the ballot. So no labels, I guess, is on the ballot in Arizona and Democrats have gone to court to challenge the way that those signatures were collected. And so I expect we're going to see a lot of legal efforts, particularly in those key swing states. You know, my uh, interactive electoral vote map shows that there are eight toss-up states right now. And in those eight toss-up states, those are the states that this third-party line will matter. Third-party line's probably not going to matter in California. It's not going to matter in New York. 
It's probably not even going to matter in Texas, but it will matter in Wisconsin, in Nevada, in Arizona, and Georgia. Those are some key states that it's going to matter. That's where the battle will be. You'll see Democratic super PACs. You'll see others challenge efforts to get the third party on these ballots. And I'm sorry, what did you say was the URL to the Political Wire interactive map? I don't believe I mentioned it, Chris, but thank you. That's at electoralvotemap.com. What? Take I think you went out there. What what was it? Electoralvotemap.com. You can play around with the electoral map, click on states, and it is a massive time sink, so beware. But if one wanted to do that, one would have to go to electoralvotemap.com. That's right, Chris. Electoralvotemap.com. Okay. Comes with a set of Ginsu knives? <laughs> not yet, but maybe. Oh, not yet. But to the hundredth viewer, it will. Exactly. Last topic I've got. Should Ron DeSantis be liking polls or not liking polls? And I asked because there were two of them posted on Political Wire on Wednesday, just about 30 minutes, 40 minutes apart from one another, which I can only assume was some type of subtext commentary on your part. But at 4.55 in the afternoon, you posted that DeSantis is running much stronger in Wisconsin. A Marquette University Law School poll in Wisconsin finds Donald Trump edging Ron DeSantis in the GOP presidential race 31% to 30%. But in a head-to-head matchup, DeSantis was favored by 57% and Trump 41%. However, lest anyone confuse you for putting your thumb on the scale for Ron DeSantis and only publishing good news about him, just 40 minutes-ish earlier, you had posted, women don't like Ron DeSantis. A new civic survey finds 63% of women disapprove of Governor Ron DeSantis, a potentially bad sign for his presidential run. <laughs> That's the understanding. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> really, potentially bad. Yeah, I guess you're right. If 50% of the electorate don't like you, that could be bad. Just 27% approve of him. Would your expert political analysis be that DeSantis should focus on the polls that deliver him good news and ignore the ones that don't? Truthfully, that's the only bit of good news that Ron DeSantis has seen in weeks since he formally announced his presidential bid. So virtually every poll, national polls pitting him against Donald Trump and the rest of the GOP field show DeSantis fading. The early states, Iowa, South Carolina, New Hampshire, all show Ron DeSantis fading since Donald Trump was indicted remarkably. So, I mean, this is a guy who's fading in the polls, even though his chief competitor has been indicted by federal prosecutors. So that's kind of amazing in and of itself. But there was this one poll in Wisconsin. And so whether that's an outlier or whether Ron DeSantis has true Midwestern support. I know he's talked up the fact that he's got Midwestern roots. Maybe there's something there. But anyway, it's one poll right now. And we've seen so many other polls that show DeSantis fading relative to Trump and in the most important states. You know, if Ron DeSantis loses in Iowa, loses in New Hampshire and loses in South Carolina, I don't think it matters what anyone in Wisconsin thinks. Sorry, Wisconsin. Sorry, Wisconsin. Sorry, Ron DeSantis. Two DeSantis follow-ups. One, what's the deal in New Hampshire? He's speaking, but he's speaking at a time that a very powerful women's group, now that I realize that in thinking about the women don't like Ron DeSantis, has their own event. What's going on in New Hampshire? 
I mean, it shows the amateurness of his campaign team, really, that they would uh, schedule something opposite, you know, a very powerful group in Republican politics. And so it's just one of those things where it shows that running for president is hard. And there's all sorts of mistakes that people made over the years. We've seen so many people run for president, seem like they've got all of the momentum in the world. They can raise money and then they just go absolutely nowhere. So, you know, reminds you a little bit of Jeb Bush back in 2016, right? At 150 million dollars and he went absolutely nowhere. Ron DeSantis is on that trajectory right now. I mean, he's not done and the voting isn't starting for months, but there's a clear front runner on the Republican side. Donald Trump is way ahead right now. It seems that what normally would be considered bad news only strengthens Trump in the Republican primary. And Donald Trump is now exercising some of that. There was also news this week that he's very serious about skipping the debate that has been scheduled for Fox News in August. And so if DeSantis wants to have a one-on-one with Trump or even just get on a debate stage with Trump or Chris Christie, for that matter, or Mike Pence, anybody looking to differentiate themselves from Donald Trump, they might be doing so on a debate where Donald Trump doesn't even show up. So Jeb Bush, Ron DeSantis, I guess what you're saying is Florida, where governors who want to be president go to die? He might as well have campaign signs that say Ron exclamation point, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it's Ron, Jeb, where woke goes to die, where Florida governors who want to be president go to die. The other near-death experience from the week, did you see the Ron DeSantis, Casey DeSantis walking on the beach photo? You know, I actually didn't see that. So I don't know if this is true. (laughs) Well, I read it on the Twitters, so it has to be true. But apparently they posted some photo of the two of them walking on the beach and she's looking at him and says something about how great he is or something, but that the photo was faked. They weren't on the beach because there are no footprints. The fact that you didn't see it, now I'm starting to wonder if maybe I got taken in by Twitter. So maybe we'll check that out and come back next week. Did Ron and Casey DeSantis actually walk on the beach and take a picture or not? Or was it just a stock photo of a Russian beach that they were on? <laughs> <laughs> well, you you had that, that I guess RFK Jr. had some type of Russian photo or something. But anything more of substance? I am just looking forward to enjoying the fireworks. Happy 4th of July, Chris. Happy 4th of July, Tegan.